and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rees, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this episode, we are going to recreate a Victorian seance and possibly make contact with the dead by using a first-hand account from a group who did just that in the 19th century. And the ghost or ghosts they communicated with did a lot more than just move a glass around a table. There were sounds heard, sights seen, corpse candles floating in the air, death-like fingers grasping from the darkness, and people screaming and fainting all around. But I'm getting ahead of myself, and I don't want to spoil all of the spooky surprises quite yet. Now, in the 19th century, going to a seance on a Friday night, or any night, was much like going to a show or a concert. There were psychic mediums plying their trade on the high streets of towns and cities across the land, and everyone seemingly was paying them a visit from the working classes right up to the royal family. By all accounts, Queen Victoria herself was particularly keen on such things. And people visited these mediums for lots of different reasons. While there might have been some who were there for genuine spiritual or scientific reasons, maybe they'd lost a loved one and they wanted some reassuring words or they wanted to confirm or deny if there really was anything in this whole life-after-death business. But for many people... It was also a form of entertainment. Going to see the medium was a bit like jumping on a ghost train. You and your friends could get together and pop in for an evening's entertainment for a few hours of contacting the dead. Some screaming, some jumping about, maybe a little bit of fumbling in the dark, which was the main appeal for some people. And then you could go for a drink and a dance afterwards. But whether you were there for spiritual reasons, for scientific reasons, or just to have a bit of a laugh, what actually happened at these seances? Well, while each medium had their own way of doing things, which did become more extravagant as time went on, generally the medium would lead the group and they would gather in the darkness of the parlour, where they would sit around the table and wait for messages to be sent from what they believed to be spirits. And these messages would be received in the form of knocks, taps. Yes, I did just use the same sound effect for both knocks and taps. Is there a difference between them? I don't know. But at its most basic, messages would be received in the forms of knocks and taps. But more than that, tables might be tipped Glasses might move seemingly of their own accord around the table, and in some of the more memorable cases, like the one we are going to look at on this episode, the participants might smell, touch, or even see these apparitions who fleetingly materialised before their very eyes. And so, to begin at the beginning of our seance, we are now going to turn to a man called Clearstone, who, 
in 1879, attended his first seance in Swansea. And, luckily for us, he wrote a detailed account of all of the paranormal activity which occurred, which he then sent to the Welsh press who published it, and that's where I found it more than a century later when I was rummaging through old newspapers while researching my book, Ghosts of Wales, Accounts from the Victorian Archives. Now, before attending the seance, Clearstone notes that he had read much about spiritualism beforehand, so he knew something about what might or might not happen, and he wasn't sure if he believed or not either. To quote, he says, Even though there should be a mysterious force is it necessarily connected with the souls of the departed? So Clearstone is somebody who believes in something. He believes there is a mysterious force out there. But he doesn't necessarily believe this force is connected to the spirit of a dead human trying to make contact. So we have someone who you could say is an ideal independent witness in a way. This is somebody, not some gullible person who will just believe anything which is put in front of them. But at the same time, they are open-minded enough to accept things if they were to occur. And personally, I've always thought this is the best way to approach such things, even nowadays. Don't just accept everything at face value. Question things. But at the same time, don't be so closed-minded that you couldn't ever accept the possibility of such things being true. But back to Clearstone. And Clearstone's reason for this visit is because he was invited by a friend, and he went along more out of curiosity than in search of any real evidence of an afterlife. He tells us he went gladly, if somewhat timidly. So again, he wasn't going to this seance because he had some burning desire to discover if there really was an afterlife or anything like that. The only reason he was going is because his friend invited him. He was curious about what would go on. And while he might have been a little bit timid, he wasn't really expecting anything too terrifying like those death-like fingers and corpse candles which are coming up later. Now, having been invited, Clearstone had to wait two weeks before they went along and the anticipation had reached fever pitch by the time the big night arrived. He sets off with his friend and they call for a group of ladies along the way. They make up the bulk of the group and despite being very chatty with the ladies on normal occasions, such is the sense of dread that is growing inside Clearstone that he tells us small talk won't flow. This is a man who is usually more than happy to chat away with the young ladies, but tonight small talk won't flow. And in fact, it becomes contagious. And he tells us that the merry little maidens themselves half withdraw from the ordeal. So in this sense, you can just imagine the scene that even before they arrive, there is a real sense of anticipation, of nervousness running through the group now. But it's too late for them to change their minds, to turn around, to reschedule. And they all arrive at the medium's premises in Swansea and get straight to it. 
the medium doesn't mess around. Time is money in the psychic world, I guess, and they get straight to it. And what follows is a description from Clearstone of the scene waiting for them. And he tells us that there was nothing extraordinary about the back parlour or about the Pembroke table round which the company sat with open hands flat on the surface in the full gas glare. Now all laughter and tittering must cease. Let us compose our minds to seriousness and elongate our faces. So the scene is set. They are sitting around the Pembroke table with their hands flat upon it. The back parlour is illuminated by gaslight, and that is an important part of this setup. This medium offers two kinds of seance. There is the light seance or the dark seance, because, you guessed it, one was conducted with light, the other one wasn't. But you could say these dark and light descriptions also reflected the tone of the seance itself. The light seance was much more of a a light-hearted affair with some silly questions and a bit of joking around. But the dark one is when things got scary, extra scary. And of course, with the lights turned off, it could also allow unscrupulous mediums to act unscrupulously, if they so desired. But to begin with, this gang were about to start a light seance. And the first thing they did was set up a knocking system for questioning. And they would use table tipping to receive thumps in reply. And the system they set up was three thumps. Yes, it's the same sound effect again. But table tipping is when a table is moved seemingly by some invisible force so that the legs are raised off the ground. And when the legs come back down again, they make that knocking noise, which, as we now know, three times means yes. Two thumps for doubtful and one thump for no. Which I find quite interesting because nowadays we assume this is more of a yes-no thing. One for yes, two for no. But certainly in the late 1800s at least, in Swansea at least, there was also that middle option like an amber light on the traffic lights. There was yes, there was no, but there was also doubtful. And so, with everyone in place, with the system established, it was time to begin the seance. And all of these questions are going to be direct quotes from Clearstone. And they start with a nice simple one. Are there any good spirits here tonight? Three thumps on the table in token of yes. What will the good spirit tell us? At which point Clearstone jokes, well, whatever we like. And as mentioned, these light seances are much more for entertainment than anything else. And the questioning goes along the lines of, will it tell the ages of the ladies? And as a result, there is commotion among the ladies. As we all know, you should never ask a lady her age. But in this case, the ghost is more than happy to answer. There is a flip 
flap flop goes the table. I am not even going to attempt to recreate a flip flap flop sound. The best I can do is knocks. But flip flap flop goes the table with an alacrity of ungallantry, which would lead to the belief that the rapping was done by the spirit of some dear departed old maid. Clearly the ghosts have no respect for young ladies' ages. Now, the next question continues this theme of not being particularly serious, and it's prompted by an interested and interesting young girl who asks, is Mr. A in love? I am assuming Mr. A is Clearstone's friend. They are the only two men there. To which Mr. A frowned, we are told, looked convicted, blushed slightly, but the table replied doubtful to the general relief of the ladies present. So no, according to the spirits at least, Mr. A was not in love. And that is pretty much how the light seance continued with the table talking to its interrogators with great volubility of rapping and flopping and tilting. So all is going well. The table is dancing away and answering their questions until an anxious inquirer asks, but why doesn't it sometimes tilt the other way? Why is the table only tilting in one direction? It will sometimes, says the chairman. Will it now, they ask, to which the table says... Doubtful. And it would not tilt the other way for the remainder of the evening. Now, why that might be, why the ghosts can only tilt it one way and not the other? Well, if I was suspiciously minded... I might think there was some trickery at work, but it's not for me to cast aspersions. But I do love the way it's the table that replies to the question rather than the medium. When they ask, why doesn't this table tilt the other way? Will it tilt the other way? It's not the medium that says doubtful. It's the table that says. And so back to Clearstone. And he tells us that having exhausted the list of questions which the company had to put respecting things past, present and future, and having received responses that left the party not much wiser than before, the query of queries was ventured. Shall we have a dark seance tonight? And answered in the affirmative. So, having exhausted these more playful questions, the kind of things you might ask a fortune teller, is so-and-so in love? When am I going to get married? With all of that out of the way, it was time to get serious, and it was time to start a dark seance. And as mentioned, a dark seance is dark by name, dark by nature. And once more, we will turn to Clearstone, to set the scene for us. And he tells us that with all hands tightly joined on the table, the gas went out. No fire, no glare through window or keyhole, total darkness, silence and palpitation of heart. Then arose slowly and softly 
the strains of an ancient congregational tune in the minor key. As the weird incantation now swelled into fullness of harmony and now sunk in doleful cadence, hark, what was that unearthly jingle? So the dark seance has begun in quite epic fashion. They can't see a thing. It is total darkness, but they can certainly hear something. They can hear the the strains of an ancient congregational tune in the minor key, whatever that may be. Well, Clearstone offers a few ideas of what he thinks it is. And he says, is it the clanking of ghostly chains as the wicked spirits troop into the chamber? Or is it the shaking of the small tambourine which we thought we noticed on the sofa before the gas went out? Yes, it is the tambourine which is now here to dance about in the upper air of the four corners of the room, as if grasped in the unsubstantial hands of some cachucha dancing sprite. Oh, the terror of that presence. So that escalated quickly, and that's probably the only time I'm going to use the words cachucha dancing sprite on this podcast or anywhere. But... There was no more talking about silly things now. With the lights out and a cachucha dancing sprite entering the room and shaking the tambourine all about, things escalated. Clearstone says, then the tambourine descends and lightly bumps each of us on the head and the ladies shriek in accompaniment. Then within the dense darkness is seen to rise a dimly phosphorescent light that quickens and dies and lives again and alights on the nose of a young lady and whisks away to the ceiling quicker than electricity and so after a hundred curious and inexplicable pranks goes out as it came in almost quite too awfully noiselessly as i said things have escalated rather quickly. They're no longer laughing and joking and asking if Mr. A is in love. They are now being banged on the head by a tambourine. They're being freaked out by some glowing light floating around the place, some corpse candle which darts around the room, even landed on some poor young lady's nose. And this paranormal assault, this assault of paranormal activity is not going to let up yet. Clearstone tells us that they have no time to catch their breath. This is no time for gratulation. The horrors of the seance are accumulating thickly upon us. And after the aerial meanderings of the tambourine and the corpse candle comes the touch of a vanished hand. Yes, they are now being touched by a vanished hand even though they attempt in the darkness to avoid it. To quote Clearstone, Bob, bob your heads, all ye instructed ones. Even bob them down in the darkness, for there is now going forth through the grim atmosphere of the chamber a cold, clammy hand whose death-like fingers search for your faces and pat your head in 
kindliness, to box your ears in wrath, or to pull your nose in ignominy. Again, I said it escalated quickly, and it keeps on escalating. Not only is the ghost or ghosts touching them with death-like fingers, it's boxing their ears and pulling their nose, and the experience or just the anticipation of waiting for those fingers to pounce proves to be too overwhelming for some. And returning to Clearstone's narration, he says, It comes. It is coming. It is here. This is past human endurance. One lady has fainted, and all of them are shrieking for pity and for light, dear light. Hands have been all the while held in remorseless grip as that other hand felt for its victims. But now are they wrenched asunder with terrified cries and the seance is broken up in disorder. When the gas is reignited, it reveals pale and fearful faces of ladies and one in a faint. There is a sprinkling of water to try and revive the lady who has fainted and for the remainder of the evening there is just a shivery shuddering solemnity. And for the last time on this episode, I am going to say, well, that escalated quickly. It reached the point where the entire thing just descended into chaos, and they were forced to end the seance, not by choice, but because people were screaming and fainting and desperately trying to find the light. And so, with the seance coming to an end, not in an orderly manner at the anointed time, they decided it was time to call it a night. And we should give the final word to Clearstone. What was really going on? What does he think? This man who was somewhat on the fence beforehand. Well, to quote, he tells us that they who only read, although in your case you are listening, but they who only read may laugh. But they who went through the mystic ordeal do anything but giggle when, in the dead of night, the memory of the tambourine dins in their ears and the icy cold hand pulls their sleepless nose. And so ends our seance and so ends this episode. But what do you think really happened? Did Clearstone and his gang really make contact with the other side? Or was it just another Victorian parlour game? As always, it's lovely to hear from people. And if you'd like to share your thoughts or just say hello, you can follow me on Twitter, on Facebook and on Instagram. And this is just one of the many accounts of Victorian seances that I've gathered, some of which are more believable than others, some of which are less believable than others. And if you'd like to read more of them, you can check them out in my book, Ghosts of Wales, Accounts from the Victorian Archives, which, like all of my other weird and wonderful books, are available from all good bookshops, offline and on, and are perfect in the build-up to Halloween. Also, if you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already, please consider hitting the subscribe 
because I am sure we will revisit the Victorian parlour sooner rather than later. And if you really enjoyed it and you'd like to show your support, please consider giving it a nice review or a quick thumbs up or five stars or whatever it is on whatever platform you are consuming this on. And on that note, it just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varion am Rando. I've been Mark Reese. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast beaming to you from Wales to the world. And until next time, is there anybody there? Doubtful. No star. <laughs> <laughs>